Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Happy July 4th, Independence uh, Day. This is the Independence Day episode of Deep State Radio, which we encourage you to listen to instead of perhaps listening to the president's July 4th speech or watching his parades and uh, flyovers in celebration of himself. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We've got a really good group here to discuss it. We have Rosa Brooks somewhere in Washington, D.C. of the Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. Um, and we've got uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund, also somewhere in D.C. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, D- Hi David. And we are joined by uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who is, where are you, Stately Luce Manor? Also in, in D.C., yes. Um, uh, well, very glad to have you with us here. Uh, and in keeping with the July 4th theme, just for a moment, um, uh, Ed, you uh, had a little bit of a piece uh, that you ran just the other day um, on the apparent emergence of an American royal family, which does seem kind of inconsistent with some of the principles that led to the founding of the United States of, um, of America, um, uh, you know, 243 years ago or whatever. Um, uh, and so uh, I thought we'd start with that. What's going on? Or have we actually become... Um, a sort of monarchy light in the United States? Well, I guess that's an open question as to what ambitions Trump has for the first daughter, uh, because she is getting more and more um, prominent um, at these global events, at these global summits. She was bang in the middle of the photo of the leaders. Um, Trump Trump brought her into it. Um, and she was, you know, she's actually sat in for him at G. G20 leaders round tables previously, so this isn't new, but it's getting more it's getting more prominent, and there is there is no precedent, at least in a in a democratic country, um, for this. I mean, if you can imagine, if you can imagine, um, if if Hillary Clinton were president and she was bringing Chelsea along and Chelsea was standing in for her, something that isn't entirely inconceivable, actually, um, but if she were doing that. Um, there would be an extraordinary uproar on on the right here, but uh, the, the uproar about Ivanka is on the left, quite quite um, concentrated on the left. And uh, I don't think it's a dynasty or a royal family, but I do think it's an extraordinary insult um, to uh, the American people first and foremost, but also to the counterparts, uh, other other democratically elected leaders who attend these summits to have Ivanka hanging around, butting in, um, dropping non-sequiturs, trying to appear as if she's legitimately part of that crowd. It's just a, it's just a horrible devaluation 
of of American statesmanship going on, and it, you know it doesn't stop with Donald Trump. It it almost gets worse when you move down a generation. Uh, yeah, so Rosa, you know, one of the things that's a little um, disturbing is that this is not the only incident. Um, Ivanka has been out there around the world having meetings, having bilaterals, uh, but of course her husband, also a senior White House official has been given responsibility for the U.S.-Mexico relationship, has been given responsibility for relations with the Middle East, has had his own little um, uh, peace plan, which um, landed with a bit of a thud in Bahrain uh, last week as the, the, as, the, as the world sort of snickered at him. Uh, the president's uh, uh, other son and he uh, tend to uh, enjoy running tweets and other things that suggest the president will not leave office when his term ends. Uh, the president has essentially started to run cabinet meetings where people are forced into obsequiousness in order to open the meeting. They have to sort of pay homage to the president in some particularly nauseating way. And the president now, of course, on July 4th, has taken over Independence Day, which was when we uh, 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 broke from a mad British king, uh, in order to sort of own it for himself and celebrate himself and make it into a political event. In other words, each one of these things taken on their own is gross, but taking them all together, is it something more than that? <laughs> well, I guess the only area in which I would disagree with what you're suggesting, David, is it's, it's not that America is becoming, obviously not an actual monarchy, but uh, uh, an oligarchy. America has been one for some time, and Trump is just more shameless about it than pretty much anyone else. Um, and I, I was, we, we have this myth in the United States, um, which had truth to it for a fairly long period of time, but has become nothing more than a nostalgic myth. Uh, this, you know, it's the Horatio Alger myth. It's the idea that America is this egalitarian place. We don't have social class. Anyone can make it. Anyone can rise from the very bottom to the very top. Um, all you have to do is work hard. But for a very long time, uh, I think our political classes have operated on the you buy your way into office, you know, more money gets your political message out there and it can, can it make a substantial difference in whether you can get elected. And then if you happen to be the, the child or close relative of uh, somebody who was in a high office, your odds of getting into a high office yourself are pretty substantial. You know, we, we've seen, we saw Bush father and son, uh, we saw Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. Now we've seen, we're seeing people suggesting that Malia Obama and Sasha Obama sometime in the future, or maybe Michelle Obama, uh, much closer to the present, should them themselves be running for office. We've got Donald Trump, who's bringing Ivanka and Jared uh, to international diplomatic conferences, you know, at all of which absolutely do send the message, hey, this is not about meritocracy. This is, this is about uh, who you know, who you're related to, and what advantages you have uh, that you started out with. And, and you know, not only on that level, but but on the economic level, this myth of American equality really is nothing more than a myth. One of the things I find most depressing, you know, Ed 
you come from a society that is often regarded by Americans as the, the you know, the very epitome of, uh, you know, a class-bound society where your your position at birth, uh, you know, are you in Downton Abbey or are you, uh, you know, the wrong wrong floor and upstairs downstairs, um, you know, that you can just never change that. You can't change your accent, you know, that your your social class is set for life. It's now the case that there is more income mobility in in Britain than there is in the United States. There is more income mobility and class mobility in Canada in almost every European country than the United States. That we don't admit this to ourselves, but the U.S. in the last 30 years has become the kind of class-bound society in which whether you succeeded as adult has very little to do with your your own talent and mostly has to do with with your parents' wealth. Well, so folks, join us for our July 4th episode, America Sucks, um, where we discuss various ways that America has become a terrible country. Um, Evelyn, uh, sorry about uh, that, guys. <laughs> well, there's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take a little of the edge off of it right here. Watch how I do that. Um, there's a new survey out um, from Mind, um, which uh, says that asked a bunch of people. I don't know how they'd know, but they asked a bunch of people, would the founders be happy or upset with the way our government has been working? And 11% said the founders would be happy. And 83% said the founders would be upset. Um, but George Washington's nephew, Bushrod Washington, was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by George Washington's successor. And Thomas Jefferson, when he left the job of being Secretary of State, he suggested that he be succeeded by Edmund Randolph, his cousin, who later was accused of treason. And, of course, John Adams was the second president of the United States, and his son, John Quincy Adams, who traveled around the world as his secretary when he was an ambassador, later became secretary of state and then became president of the United States. So all this has been going on. Is this the good news or the bad news? Yeah, I mean, okay, go on. (laughs) I'm just saying this has been going on for a while. But these were also slaveholders. I mean, let's not put the, the founding fathers on pedestals. I mean, yes, they had the right idea about, you know, separation of powers. Uh, and I think that's where most people feel that we're really in grave danger. I mean, we're already, we've already stumbled. Maybe we haven't fallen quite yet because there's, we have, of course, a House that's providing some check on the president and the Supreme Court that's providing some check on the president still. But I think that people, people are concerned that that, which I think most Americans believe it's the adherence to the Bill of Rights and the separation between church and state and the separation of powers. Maybe those three things are, are, are what most people will agree are positive contributions that the founding fathers gave to us. We'll leave out the sexism, the racism, the nepotism, you know, all those other things, um, you know, shooting each other, stabbing each other, whatever. We'll leave that stuff out because they weren't perfect. Um, but what they gave us, the foundational elements of our democracy, um, those, those things are holding up still, but they are really under threat. And I think the founding fathers would be alarmed to see how under threat they are today. 
I haven't checked in with John Meacham lately. It's interesting because, you know, he wrote his book about the, the better angels and, you know, his book was basically making the point that we've had these other, these moments of crisis in the past before where our democracy looked like it was imperiled. And yet, you know, here we still are today. I wonder if now, you know, I think over a year, maybe a year and a half after the book came out, not to mention probably two years after he wrote it, um, he would, he would still be so optimistic, but I guess my answer is uh, we're hanging in there. Okay, Ed, I'm going to give you a chance here to lay into that that thin thread of an argument in our favor, because, of course, if you're saying that the things that we have going for us is separation of powers and the executive branch seems to be able to ignore the Congress at its whim, uh, and in fact, we've had a Democratic Congress for six months and they've done virtually nothing to hold the executive branch accountable, and uh, the uh, control of the Congress is now being uh, opened up to purely political processes that are really anti-democratic by decision last week regarding gerrymandering in the Supreme Court that may go down as one of the worst in recent um, or all of American history. Um, and then on top of that, uh, Evelyn mentioned uh, separation of church and state, and of course, um, on a regular basis, uh, uh, presidents like Trump, uh, however hypocritically, are invoking uh, America's identity as a so-called Christian nation, which it is not. Um, and then, you know, you've got the other elements of the Bill of Rights, uh, which are under siege, notably the First Amendment, where just this past weekend in Osaka, the president of the United States hailed the work of Mohammed bin Salman, who murdered and chopped up an American journalist, joked with Vladimir Putin about fake news and how he didn't have that problem there, even though, or perhaps because he was a serial murderer of journalists, made similar jokes to Erdogan, who did likewise, and so on. So all those things that, you know, may have been the distinction, they seem under siege too, no? Yeah, and another aspect I didn't mention uh, and this does pertain to, to, to your larger question, but um, uh, about the G20 summit is it was the elected leaders of, of the world who felt discomfort at Ivanka's growing presence and, if, and her husband, Jared. Um, people like Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin are fine with it. Um, in it's societies which have dynastic governments um, find the Trump administration very easy to do business with. And that is culturally a very, very troubling sort of um, feature of Washington um, nowadays. As regards, you know, whether the Constitution is holding up or not, um, you know, I, I agree with your example just from last week about the partisan gerrymandering, that basically now there's a carte blanche for Republican state, well, but any, to any controlled state, one party controlled state to um, completely sort of pretzelize their maps in order to, um, you know, rig the system for permanent majorities, well, 10 year majorities. So we're probably going to get that another 10 years um, in 2020, after the 2020 results and the results of the next, next census, another decade where more than 60% of states um, uh, Republican-controlled states are going to are going to have an inbuilt um, gerrymandered conservative majority. Um, so the system, the third branch of government, is not is not being called in to address the faults um, of the first and the second. It's actually ratifying and exacerbating those faults. So 
in that respect, the Constitution is actually failing um, the system. This isn't a separation of powers. This is this is um, um, a, a sort of supine validation of. Of, of the breaking of the spirit of the constitution um, by the judiciary. And, and that's very, very disturbing. And the implications for the direction in which American politics are going uh, uh, is, I think, quite troubling, because I think you're going to get this veto-proof um, uh, shrinking in absolute numbers, um, conservative America, basically blocking the rest of America from doing anything, you know, whether it, whether it's healthcare reform or infrastructure or, um, you know, having um, a sensible immigration um, system, whatever it might be, those stresses um, are going to get more and more um, uh, glaring and the tensions associated with them are going to get, and frustrations are going to get bigger and bigger. And that there isn't going to be a system to deal with them because because of everything that I've just said. And so you can see that there's no single constitutional moment, a moment of constitutional crisis there. But there is a building deeply structural problem um, with the American system. And I don't know the way out of it. I mean, if we, if we want to go back to the founding fathers and ask what they would have thought of things. Well, as you know, Jefferson famously said, look, each generation should make its own constitution. It would be great if the American constitution could be amended right now um, to, um, to take away the heavy and increasing rural bias in representation. Um, but uh, as we all know, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, three quarters of states are not going to, um, they're not going to be turkeys voting for, voting for Thanksgiving. Um, so I can only see these stresses, regardless of whether you've got a Democrat or Republican in the White House, getting worse. And in some ways, it might get worse with a Democrat in the White House. You see all these very laudable and in you know, some cases well thought through desperately needed reforms that are being discussed by Democratic candidates. But, you know, if there are if, if there's a blocking um, Republican, 50 plus Republicans in the Senate, it's not going to happen, most of this stuff. Well, and, and as we've often discussed before, Rosa, uh, to use your words, the Constitution sucks. Uh, I, I don't know if that's exactly what you said. <laughs> but, those aren't quite my words, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we do seem to be up against some problems with this old idea of apportioning uh, votes by geography as well as by um, uh, population, which does give less populated states disproportionate influence and in how we will end up by 2030 with uh, 68 states being uh, selected by 30 or 68 seats being selected by something like 30-ish uh, uh, or 30 percent of the people. Um, and uh, we uh, have this gerrymandering decision and that could make it worse. There are four or five states we think of right now where uh, the majority vote tends not to elect the larger delegation to Congress by party. So, uh, in other words, those things have been permanently uh, rendered out of whack. There seems to be a dispute about whether the president of the United States is actually above the law. Uh, and while we may see that challenged in the court, so far it hasn't actually been effectively challenged. And this president, in case after case, has simply asserted the ability to ignore laws he doesn't like and ignore what the Congress is doing and ignore 
um, congressional uh, oversight. And then on top of that, uh, to the extent to which the, uh, the imbalances within the, 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 the way we select representatives to the Senate uh, get translated into imbalances in the way the judiciary is selected, that could uh, get rid of uh, one of the checks or at least make it more uh, difficult uh, if the, the judges act in a partisan way um, to, to have a check. Uh, and so it seems like we, you know, a couple hundred years later, we're we're on a slippery slope where we might actually see this document, which has served us well, start to fail us. Sure, absolutely, and and you know, the overquoted Benjamin Franklin is worth quoting yet again uh, when he came out of the Constitutional Convention. He was supposedly approached by people saying, well, what kind of government has the Constitutional Convention created, which he's, he's at least said to have responded, a republic if you can keep it. Uh, and, you know, apocryphal or not, it's, it's an important line because I think one of the things that Americans, we have, we have trouble with is remembering that progress is not inevitable, that America has no God-given right to be anything in particular, uh, powerful, rich, prosperous, or democratic, um, that if you want to be a republic, it takes constant work and the constitution, you know, closing in on whatever, I can't, I can't do the, the math here, but, but, uh, you know, closing in on 200 and, you know, 30 like some years, years. Yeah, whatever it is, um, you know, that, that, whoever whoever promised us that it was going to be easy or automatic i think that you know as evelyn said the the it's not so much that i think the constitution sucks i don't think the constitution sucks uh i think the constitution was then uh and is now a a compromised document uh designed by human beings who happen to be politicians who were not in fact on average necessarily any any wiser uh, than any particular leader today. Well, okay, they were wiser than Donald Trump. I'll give him that, no question. But, but you know, they were they were human. Um, they were not. They were not. You know, speaking from divine inspiration, they made they made many of the exact kinds of disgusting political compromises that we we decry politicians for making today. Um, and they were very much you know people of their own times. They got some things in there that I look at and I think, wow, that's incredibly good and it's it's worth preserving. And there are some other things that you think, boy, that didn't work out so well, you know? Um, so I think the issue with the constitution is just that if we treat it as if, you know, it was handed to Moses uh, right along with the 10 commandments, um, you know, and therefore it is somehow destined to endure and destined to somehow give us the right answers to modern policy problems that's when we go wrong. If we, if we think of it in a more, in a more humble way as, you know, not so bad for its time, but something that is not going to answer all of our questions for us, uh, that if we want to have our democracy, that we're going to have to keep fighting for it. I think that that puts us in, in a better frame of mind. Um, you know, I also think, I mean, it's absolutely the case that there were all sorts of ways in which early America was a pretty rotten place if you were anyone other than a white male landowner. Um, that being said, I, I think it's 
probably fair to say that the period in American history uh, between the Second World War and the you know mid 1970s was a period of expanding rights, uh, uh, rising life expectancy, lowered income inequality, rising opportunity for a wider and wider range of Americans. You know, we saw the civil rights movement, we saw the feminist movement, uh, inequality flattened out. Um, then we started to go back again, and we have been going back pretty steadily, uh, certainly on the economic e equality side, uh, although I think in, in other ways we've expanded, continued to expand, you know, the promise of America to other marginalized groups. Um, but, but our, the, you know, the most dangerous thing about America is our conviction that we're special and that everything is going to work out because that's just the way it's supposed to be. Um, you know, there is no guarantee. Empires, empires fall apart. Uh, things don't always get better. Often they get worse and they sure don't get better if you just sit around assuming that they're going to get better. Um, so, so Fourth of July message, I think, should not be a despairing message at all. But it certainly should be a sobering message, a message that uh, things are not going in the right direction in this country, um, but also a message that we can change those things if we don't like them, but we have to get off our butts and take it seriously. I do want to speak on behalf of Ed. I know he can speak for himself, but I know he takes these comments about empires do not last forever very personally. And uh, <laughs> also, also your reference to the Ten Commandments. Um, Ed only has ever really been in favor of six or seven of them. And well, that's true. They're, they're also not all created equal. Yeah, <laughs> God, a, God needed an editor. Bit of, a, bit of a mixed bag there. Well, look, while we're celebrating, while we're having this sobering moment, you know, which I think is appropriate since this July 4th, we're actually going to have the president hijack the holiday. And it really does. It should serve as a warning to everybody in the United States that... Um, you know, this uh, oligarchy is getting out of hand, that some of these imbalances are getting out of hand, that we are not entitled to having a high-function government, we are not entitled to having the Constitution work as it was intended. There's another sort of set of issues happening simultaneously um, that I also think reflect very directly on July 4th, and those are the way that the United States is treating immigrants to this country, um, which of course make up the bulk of the people um, who are in the country at the moment, since the bulk of people are not uh, descended from indigenous people, um, uh, and that there are long periods in United States history, in fact, the periods of greatest growth in the U.S., where if you showed up at the border and said you wanted to come here and work and say you knew and said you knew somebody here, you'd be let in. Um, and now we have people in concentration camps, and there's a debate about the nature of those camps. And, you know, some people on the Republican side say, how dare you call them concentration camps? They're not death camps like Auschwitz, as if, you know, comparing, you know, your facility to Auschwitz favorably was actually exculpatory. Um, but, uh, but, but Evelyn, I think, and I don't want to, you know, get too much into your past, but I think your family recently came to the United States. Um, uh, uh, as, as did mine, by the way, my father came to the United States. Um, uh, how, do, how do you react to all of that? And how do you see that reflecting on the character of the country? How do I see what reflecting? The, 
the way we're treating immigrants right now. Oh, I mean, horrendously. So, you know, this is a nation of immigrants, as you rightly pointed out, with the exception of the Native Americans, which is still something we are grappling with. Um, and then, of course, the slaves who were brought here forcibly. You know, I, I mean, I don't even know what to say because the president is drawing a very clear economic and racist line between the immigrants who are trying to come into the U.S. today, mainly from the southern border, and or at least those are the ones that he's attacking. Of course, we know that most immigrants are coming through, um, or at least historically have come through regular ports of entry through planes, et cetera. But in any event, um, the, the reality is that President Trump is setting up a dichotomy between sort of the old immigrants and the new immigrants, which is not new to America. I mean, we've had this problem in the past where, you know, you had deep cleavages between different types of European, you know, immigrants to the U.S. and, you know, where the Irish were looked down upon, the Italians were looked upon, down upon by you know, uh, Ed's, uh, Ed's, 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 people from Ed's part of the world, you know, the, wow. the, 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 wow. the Ed, defend the yourself. Well, I, the, the progress does happen. I am very happily married <laughs> to an Irish woman. Excellent. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah. And, and, and today, you know, uh, there's no, you know, Americans tend to not look down on Irish Americans and Italian Americans, although you can argue that as well. Um, so I, I would just say, you know, it, it, it's it's basically appalling. I mean, we are a country of immigrants. We the the Statue of Liberty. There there have been a lot of comic book writers who have drawn pictures of the Statue of Liberty crying, and you know, give me your poor huddled masses yearning to be free. And of course, we can't allow everybody in, but there's international law to govern who comes in, and and everybody has the right to be heard. You know, to get a free hearing about whether they should be granted asylum or whether they should be allowed to immigrate to, uh, immigrate to the United States, right? So the, the, I, my biggest beef is that, you know, we have a process in place largely because of what happened during World War II and the Holocaust and the shame that we bore here in the United States for turning away people who were subject to genocide to go back to their deaths in Europe. And so, you know, we in the international community stepped forward and said, we're not going to let that happen again. But yet, of course, I mean, everything we've established since the Second World War when it comes to dealing with refugees and genocide, et cetera, is all under siege right now. And, and it's a very dangerous thing because that coupled with global climate change, which is going to displace people in ways that our previous wars and, you know, humanitarian crises have have maybe haven't even touched upon. I mean, it could get worse. So the fact that we are we are dismantling, we're seeing this attack on those processes and those institutions is frightening if you think about what could happen in the future. So I've gone a little bit far afield from your original question back into the international realm, but I guess I feel like there's not that much to say. It's so obvious that this president is attacking what makes America strong and special. You know, one of the things to say is, uh, you know, Ed, you have done these great uh, couple of uh, features where you go out into the to middle America and, and you talk and you sort of di 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 disabuse people of some of the preconceptions. They've got the most recent piece being your really good piece on the uh, redneck rebellion in, in, in West Virginia uh, and how you can't 
caricature a state like that. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time by border states. And one of the things that I found is, although that there are these kind of small groups that are anti-immigrant, that the vast majority of Americans are pro-immigrant. And in fact, recent studies show um, uh, something like 80 plus percent of Americans think there ought to be a path to citizenship, think that DACA recipients, um, the dreamers ought to, ought to have a path to citizenship. More than that, think they ought to be able to get work permits. The vast majority of Americans believe that we should be treating immigrants better than we are. So I, I kind of wonder if this circles back to this constitutional argument we had about the disproportionate power that's going to smaller, more extreme groups uh, and how the, the, you know, in the Federalist Papers, they talk about tyranny of the majority, but we're ending up in a situation between oligarchy and, and, and the disproportionate power being given to the rich or to people from unpopulated states, essentially to red states. Of, of tyranny of a minority in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm tempted to say it, it, that was always the case. You know, in any democracy, the most organized, um, well-funded, strongly um, emotional groups tend to do, to, to accomplish more than um, vaster numbers um, that might disagree with them. And there is this sort of collective action problem that political scientists have looked at for decades and decades. Um, which is, you know, 99% of Americans might get, you know, a dollar a piece if a certain reform happens. But if 1% of Americans, you know, lose $100 a piece, then they're going to be more motivated and they're likelier to succeed. So the one will defeat the 99 um, if there are asymmetric benefits. Um, and um, with immigration, this is a classic example. You know, as you say, most Americans on most issues are really very sensible, very mainstream. Um, this country isn't gripped by um, some kind of an alt-right nativist fever. Most Americans are not like that. I've even you know, met a lot of Trump voters who as individuals are very, very decent people. Um, I'd argue they're very misguided in the way they vote, but um, you know, that, that's a, a, a different question. Um, the, um, the danger here is that all the reasonable positions that polls tell us again and again Americans hold on immigration, which, as you said, things like a pathway to citizenship, um, you know, DACA, dreamers staying in the country, um, having um, reasonable enforcement um, at the border, but, you know, having a proper sort of gateway for continued immigration. Um, all of these positions that were the Democratic Party's positions. The Democratic Party seems to be partly in response to the horrific images we were talking about and the horrible treatment of um, separated families and the children and the conditions in these detention facilities. Um, that the Democratic Party is being emotionally pushed to the left to positions that come very close to saying abolish ICE. They might not technically be saying abolish ICE, most of them, but it's, politics is not what you say, it's what voters hear. Um, and I, I, I think Trump is a past master, he's a genius at getting his opponents to push to extremes. And so what I worry is, um, the Democratic Party is, is moving further away from the mainstream, fairly sensible, um, um, perfectly humane American view on immigration to a more extreme ideological position, which in no way is, I'm, am I comparing 
to Trump's reprehensible, inhumane um, stance on immigration, but that which politically could be very, very damaging. And this is the game he knows how to play. And so politically right now, that is my concern. Well, I'll tell you something, and I'm, I'm not going to go into a long rant here. People can go and read long rants of mine in columns like the one I had in the Daily Beast or, 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 or Twitter. That's an excellent column. Thank, well, thank you. But, but, but I, you know, you do talk about the American mainstream and in an effort to sort of switch this to some kind of good news, I'm going to go first and ask each one of you, you know, some of the things you think are going well right now. And this will just take me a minute. But, you know, I went on and I looked at where is the American mainstream and are these arguments that the United States is sort of push or the, the, the progressives are pushing the Democrats too far left. You know, do they hold water? This You're hearing this from a lot of sort of never Trumpers. And the reality is, and I'm just going to go down through some data really, really quickly here, but something like seven out of 10 Americans want, according to a credible Reuters Ipsos poll this year, want strong or moderate restrictions on firearms. Nine in 10 want to in, increase background checks. A morning consult Politico poll this year showed that three quarters of registered voters want higher taxes on wealthiest Americans. 70% in a Fox News poll wanted to increase taxes for those earning more than 10 million. 61% favor wealth tax like Elizabeth Warren's. A Yale poll last year, late last year, showed 70% of Americans believe in global warming and 66% um, believe climate change is a serious problem that need more action. 70% of Americans support Medicare for all. Uh, six in 10 Americans consider it a government responsibility. Eight out of 10 Americans want undocumented immigrants a path to citizenship. Um, uh, 83% in a Fox poll showed wanting to set up a pathway to citizenship. Um, uh, an education next poll late last year showed that um, uh, two thirds of Americans want higher wages for teacher and half would pay high, higher taxes to give them those wages. Nearly eight out of 10 thought teachers were underpaid. And when they say, well, how do you pay for all this? Well, you know, where does America come out on that? Uh, vast majorities of Americans support increased spending on education, veterans benefits, infrastructure, Medicare, environmental protection, healthcare and scientific research. Um, and, and so, you know, when you, you, you listen to that, and you know, sorry to list off a bunch of numbers, um, the reality is that the mainstream of America is where Elizabeth Warren is. It's where Kamala Harris is. It's why those candidates are, are resonating. It's not where Donald Trump is. It's not where the center says it is. It's not where the center used to be. So to me, that's a source of some hope. Now, Rosa, Evelyn, and Anna, just you know, take a minute and tell me some source of hope you've got about America. David, I, I think your source of hope is a good source of hope. I actually did not come away from watching the Democratic debates thinking, oh no, Democrats are, are in trouble. I came away from the Democratic debates actually feeling really good about the future of the Democratic Party because I, I, I thought that 
the if the debates highlighted nothing else, it highlighted that there's a lot of talent in that group of, you know, 800 people or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, it's confusing to have 20 some Democratic candidates uh, running in the primaries. You know, it makes it harder for any of them to stand out in the pack. But but I thought that there were, you know, half a dozen who who did a fantastic job overall. Uh, and it, you know, made me think, hey, we've got a lot of people uh, who are who are either established or emerging as leaders of the Democratic Party who are going to be able to speak to ordinary Americans. You know, and this is a primary campaign. The primary, your job in the primary is to focus on your base and not be trying to reach out to people who already disagree with you. So it doesn't seem particularly shocking to me that most of what we heard during those debates uh, was not focused on persuading uh, moderates who maybe aren't Democrats uh, at all to come over to the Democratic fold, but we're instead persuading people who already consider themselves Democrats to, you know, vote for one candidate over another. Um, you know, we'll we'll continue to see that until primary season is over, and then I think we'll see obviously a substantial shift from whoever the uh, victorious Democratic candidate turns out to be. Uh, towards sort of thinking about, well, okay, you know, now not only do we need to mobilize a democratic base, but we also want to make sure, you know, we're not trying to win over the hardcore Trump supporter, but we do want to be making sure that we can win over as many independents and moderates as, as possible. So I think we'll see that. I, I, I came out of that thinking, you know, we're, we're in good shape. No, none of these people with, you know, with the exception of a handful um, are yet household names, but this bodes pretty well for the future of the party and the future okay. of the country. No, it's good. And by the way, the reason I mentioned all those numbers is I consider this to be a new American majority. This is not just Democrats. It's Republicans, some of the people that Ed wrote about. It's independents as well. Evelyn, you've got a minute or two before you have to scoot off to your next big television appearance. What, 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 what are you optimistic about? I mean, I guess I remain optimistic, you know, based on what happened with the midterm elections. And I know, I mean, as you and Ed rightly pointed out, the the, the House has not been able to check, you know, the, the White House alone. And unfortunately, the Senate remains in the hands of Mitch McConnell, who is a very obsequious Republican when it comes to dealing with President Trump. And so we're in a deadlock and the House the House Democrats can only provide a good example, but not get too much real legislation passed. But I still think that, I mean, to me, it's still a hopeful sign that we were, that the Democrats were able to take the majority. And, and I hope that over time, more of the, you know, support that President Trump had will erode. I know I may be overly optimistic and this is why I'm not, um, you know, I try not to uh, forecast domestic politics, but, you know, I, I do feel that a lot of the, the natural Trump voters, you know, it's anecdotal, but if you open any newspaper, major newspaper, that's kind of neutral. Um, so I consider that the New York Times, the Washington Post, I mean, they have, they have articles where they cover what people are saying in the heartland. The farmers are not happy. I mean, sure, you still have the hardcore Trump supporters who will vote for him even if their interests are being actually harmed by him, their personal interests. And that's, and that's uh, you know, unfortunately been a, been a feature on the landscape of our politics even before President Trump. But I do think 
more people are understanding the connection between the president's politics and their particular um, declining economic situation and are willing to consider voting for another, for an alternative. And I guess the key then will be, you know, who's the, who is the alternative? Um, good. Well, thank you, Ed. You're naturally cheery by nature. So uh, my source of optimism is always renewed about America when I uh, when I travel around America doing doing journalism. Well, it doesn't have to be journalism, um, but when I'm traveling around America talking to people, because um, I find I find most Americans to be incredibly open and you know friendly and um, responsive and interesting to talk to. Um, uh, some might be you know misguided politically at times, but you know even those um, you know as I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of surprisingly charming, um, very generous at the personal level, Trump voters around, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, there was this election, re-election or um, rerun of the election at Erdogan's insistence in Istanbul, the mayoral election the other day. And the guy, the anti-Erdogan candidate who won, won on a campaign strategy of love Erdogan's voters, ignore Erdogan. Um, and it was a very, very clever strategy. She said, don't talk about Erdogan and really sympathize and, and, uh, and reach out to his voters. And I think as long as um, um, the, the anti-Trump majority in America, at least nominal anti-Trump majority in America, thinks along those lines, that I'm optimistic that this, this, this particular nightmare can be brought to a close next year. Um, it is worth stressing, and I think it's not understood enough in, in sort of coastal um, liberal urban America, um, that polls again and again show that Americans are more economically radical than you think, but they're also a little bit more socially conservative than you think. Um, now, uh, they've moved, you know, gay marriage is now accepted by strong majorities. They've moved, but they never moved quite as fast as the coasts. And so as long as there's no need to compromise any social principle, any civil right principle, transgender rights, whatever, but as long as the Democratic Party understands that most of the conversation should be directed to um, uh, where the economy is going, um, which is one reason why Trump, in his bait-and-switch way, won in 2016. He didn't sound like a Republican. Now, he was bullshitting, um, but he understood that. If the Democrats understand that, then I think then I think this nightmare can be brought to a close. Um, but in the meantime, we've got to we've got to watch his um, his 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 idea of the Bastille Day Parade. So <laughs> the nightmare continues. Uh, yeah, or the or the May Day Parade. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I think I, I think Rose's point was that the Democratic um, debate, first one, well, it may have seemed a little wonky to many and confusing with twenty candidates. Uh, was very substantive on a lot of the points you mentioned. And so I think there is some hope there. And I don't want to send people out into July 4th where there are you know, a lot of exploding devices and chances to harm themselves in a bad mood. You know, they are, And also alcoholic beverages. I want people to uh, celebrate responsibly, but also to have something to celebrate. And I think all of this is positive. So um, thank you, everybody, for taking a little time out on your holiday weekend to join us at Deep State Radio. While Ed says the only charming people he meets are former Trump voters, I know he includes us in that group. 
I do, I do. It's most charming of the lot at Deep State Radio. Exactly. We're very charming. Aren't we charming, Rosa? We're we're extremely charming. (laughs) You are. Thank you. Um, And so, you know, we're so charming, you should come back next week and then the week after that to celebrate our 200th episode. Oh, my God. You know, how many sitcoms got that far? Not many. And um, and 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 we look forward to joining you for that and and for an even bigger celebration than America's birthday celebration. We will make the 200th celebration of Deep State Radio um, more festive and we will have a parade and we will have tanks. We will have tanks in the 200th birthday celebration of Deep State Radio. Rosa, please, you worked in the Pentagon. Please, please arrange tanks. I will work on the the tanks. They will be very, very big tanks. They will be the biggest tanks anyone has ever seen. Big tanks. <laughs> I will sing tanks for the memories. All right. Um, sorry. You know, dad jokes. Come That's dad. the kind of thing my my father makes that joke all the time. Yeah. And when we're making salad, he'll say, "Let us, oh, let us." Wow. Yeah. No, you yeah. can't help it. As soon as you have children, part of your Sense of <laughs> That's true. Or as my grandfather and father always say, I see, said the blind carpenter as he picked up his hammer and saw. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> well, once again, we're back to things to worry about for America. Anyway, happy July 4th, everybody. And we'll see you again next week. And thank you, Rosa, Evelyn, and Ed. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.